Thank you for listening to today's Easter message. We hope you enjoy it. Once again, always look us up on Facebook at Southern Hills United Methodist Church and check out our website at www.shumcokc.org. What does the resurrection mean? I feel like there had to be a moment. The scriptures don't say this, but I feel like there had to be a moment where sitting there in the darkness of a closed tomb, Jesus remembered. He had already descended. He had already conquered sin and death. He had already fulfilled the requirements of the old covenant so that we could step out of something that it was time to step out of and step into what God had planned for us so that we could take one more step towards toward God's final act of healing for creation, which is yet to come. He had already done those things. And it happened so many times before. Sitting there just moments before the stone would be rolled away from the tomb, moments before light would enter into the tomb and uh, the breath of life would once again renew and resurrect the world as it had before. There had to have been a moment when he sat there in the darkness of the tomb and he remembered. It's always in the midst of darkness when new life begins. So many, so many times we think that it began just a few decades before that when God in God's great wisdom chose to come down to earth in human form in a manger in a tiny little town by the light of a very bright star on an otherwise insignificant night, but it didn't begin there. It began eons before that. The Spirit of, the God, of God was hovering over the darkness of the water. The earth was formless and without void. You know, the ancient Israelites believed that the world was a, a, a round body of water. They called them the waters of chaos. And so, uh, early on in the Genesis narrative, which begins with the Spirit of God hovered over the darkness of the waters of the deep, and then God spoke and there was light. In the midst of the darkness, there was light. And then he separated the waters above from the waters below. That's what Genesis says. If you see a rendering of how the, the ancient world looked uh, by ancient uh, Jewish people, ancient Israelite people, you'll see a drawing of, of a world with water all the way around, and there's a dome inside of it. That's what Genesis says, that God created a dome to separate the waters above from the waters below, the waters of chaos that it held back, that God held back. God spoke, and there was Light, God spoke, and then light came into the darkness. Life came into the world. The creation began in the moment in which God spoke when His Spirit was hovering over the darkness of the waters of the deep, the waters of chaos. When the earth, earth was formless, creation was without form and without shape. God spoke and there was light. The light came into the darkness. God spoke and there was life. That light brought the light of life into the world and creation happened. Then, as the story goes, just a couple of chapters later in Genesis, 
darkness creeps back into the world again. Darkness creeps back into the world because darkness creeps back into the human heart. And people begin to believe that they don't need God anymore. I don't need God in order to make decisions. I can figure things out for myself. I know what's going on around me. My perceptive ability is is strong enough, wide enough, good enough, and deep enough that I can figure out what's going on around me. I don't need God to make decisions. That's what Genesis says. Starts in chapter 3. Darkness creeps back into the world because darkness creeps back into the human heart. We don't know what we don't know. There was no way for us to know or we could have. If we'd have paid attention, if we'd have listened, we could have known. That's what the Bible says. We could have known, but we didn't. We didn't know what we didn't know, and we didn't know that the result of our decisions would lead to consequences that we never could have foreseen, which would find darkness not only creeping back into the world, not only creeping back into the human soul, but growing over time. In that moment, God made a decision began what a dear friend of mine would once call the greatest cosmic plan of redemption ever put into place. God wouldn't let the darkness continue to grow unchecked in the world, not in the world, not in the the heart of people. God was not going to let the darkness continue to grow unchecked. God in God's great wisdom knew that we would need a covenant of some kind, some sort of a contract or a law or a set of rules. Originally there were 613 of them designed to help us to know what it meant to be God's people again, to relate to God in the way that God originally intended. God knew it was going to take a few steps to get us from where we had come to to where we needed to be. God's great wisdom, God knew a different covenant would be needed someday. God knew we wouldn't be able to pay the price that was necessary to get us from one place to the next. And so God promised to do that. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And so, on an otherwise inconsequential night, God chooses to come to earth in human form as a child in a manger in a tiny little town by the light of a really bright star. And in entering into the world began to help us to take one more step, a giant step, toward growing into the kind of life and health and healing and wholeness that God has promised will be our inheritance one day. Sitting there. Having already conquered sin. Already conquered death. Death being the last great darkness. Or at least, that's what we thought. Somebody's listening today. More than one somebody. And you're sitting in the darkness of your own tomb right now. The tomb that's been created by the circumstances of the world. Maybe you had a hand in it, but you're sitting in the darkness of your own tomb right now, wanting to get out, but you know you can't roll the stone away because the stone is too heavy. Death, we thought, was the last darkness. Christ conquered that. Christ conquered death, and Christ conquered sin, which is separation from God. Sin is separation from God. We're going to talk about that in a minute as well. He'd already conquered that, and so he's sitting there in the darkness of the tomb. At least I think he probably was. Sitting there for just a second. 
for the stone will roll away, the light will flood into the darkness once again, and the breath of life will once again breathe the light of life into the world and give people an opportunity to do something that they couldn't do before. He had to have sat there for just a moment or two and remembered. Just remembered how many times God of heaven and earth had breathed the light of life into the darkness of the world, into the darkness that creeps all too often into the human heart before. What does the resurrection mean? We've been talking about it for 2,000 years. What does it mean? What does the resurrection mean for you? What does the resurrection mean for me? What does the resurrection mean for us? When you hear somebody say that Jesus Christ conquered sin and death, that, that because of that we can participate in the resurrection of Christ, what does that mean? Does it just mean I have an eternal life? Or does it mean that and something else? Maybe something more. What does the resurrection mean? How do I participate in the resurrection of Christ today? I want to share with you three things. We could talk about the resurrection all day. We've been talking about it for 2,000 years. But today, I just want to share with you three things to remember when you're thinking about what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means for you. But I was told that before we consider the Scriptures, we should pray because they are holy. Let's do that now. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh upon us. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Melt us and mold us and fill us and use us. But Spirit of the living God, fall fresh upon us. Amen. This happens in darkness. It's always in the darkness. When the light of life shines the brightest. When, when God breathes the breath of life that carries the light of life into the world, it always happens in darkness. You may have heard me say recently that in order to step into a new beginning, that new beginning often has to be preceded by a new ending. It was time. It was time for one thing to end and another thing to begin. God takes Abram outside into the darkness of the night. I don't know if you've ever seen stars outside of the city lights. If you've ever had the chance to go somewhere where there's no light coming up from a town or a city or a village anywhere around you and you can look up at the sky. It's an amazing experience. There are so many stars, it's impossible to count them. And when you look up at them, you wonder how it is that so many stars are not just keeping the world bright all through the day and through the night. They're beautiful and they're everywhere and they represent the number of people that God promised Abram would represent his offspring. God takes Abram outside. Abram would have his name changed in time to Abraham, which means the father of many or the father of a, a great group of people. But right now, his name is Abram. It used to be a thing in the ancient world that you would be named uh, according to something that meant something to you or about you, to the people who named you. But over time, sometimes your name would change to reflect a significant event in your life. That was going to happen to Abraham. His, his name would change to be the father of many because of what God was doing with and in him on that night. He took him outside. He said, look up. He said, I'm going to create a covenant with you. They called it cutting a covenant. I'm going to tell you why in a second. Now, a covenant in the ancient world is like a contract. Everybody did it the same way. It didn't matter if you were religious or not. Much like going to get 
a notary on your signature so that whatever form you're signing can be a, a legal document that will stand up in a court if necessary. Everybody back then knew what the processes for putting a contract or a covenant together were too. Abram knew what those processes were and God came to Abram and said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Translated, he said, I'm going to make a contract with you and I'm going to do it in a way that you understand. The same way it's always done with all the people, whether they're religious or not, whether they know me or not, whether they follow me or not. Abram said, okay. God had come to Abram already and said, Abram, hey, we're gonna, I need you to pick up your family and I need you to move to another place. And Abram did it. And God credited that to Abram as righteousness. This all happened earlier in Abram's life. And in that, we see an example of what God originally wanted. God originally wanted that kind of deep, meaningful, personal, intimate relationship with everybody. That's what the garden was. But darkness creeps its way into the world, creeps its way into the human heart, and begins to corrupt what is around it so that, like James, who was the brother of Jesus, wrote, it's almost like we're stumbling around thinking we're walking in the light, but we're not. We're walking in the darkness, and because we're walking in the darkness, because we can't see, we don't know where we're going or what we're stumbling over or what we're putting in the way of others. God knew it was time. So he comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to start this. We're going to create a covenant. I'm going to create a covenant with you. And it's going to be with you and with your offspring. And Abram's like, we can't have offspring. And so God says, come outside. There are moments in history when God has said to a person or to us, you just watch, you just wait and see what I will do because I am God. And he takes him outside and he says, look at the stars. Abram is in the, the desert. There's no lights around, not from a village, not for a town. There's no electricity. There's no firelight. There's no candles. There's nothing. And he looks up and he sees all the stars in the night sky. And God says, you see that? Count them. And Abram says, I can't count them. And God says, that's, that, that, that's the stars. The stars represent your descendants. Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And through them, through your descendants, God said to Abram, I will save all of creation. So Abram falls into a trance, which happens in the Bible a lot. Just about every time God is going to appear to somebody, a person falls into a trance. We see it with Joseph when he falls asleep and an angel appears to Joseph to tell him about the, the virgin birth that is to come. We see it later in the scriptures when John of Patmos is exiled and is writing what has come to be called the book of Revelation. He goes into a trance and God reveals things to him. We see it literally from the very beginning of the Bible all the way through the Bible and to the end of the Bible that when God wants to reveal something to a person very often, they go into a trance. That's what happens to Abram. He kind of goes into a trance. Before that, God has said, you need to get some animals. And he gives them a list. And he tells them that the animals, and this is a little bit grotesque, but it's the way they did things then, are going to have to be sacrificed and separated. Now, it's normal. This is how covenants are made. Everybody has to do this, usually between a higher-ranking party and a lower-ranking party. And the way that works is that when you're the lower-ranking party and you make a covenant or a contract with someone, they called it cutting a barret because the animals had to be separated, you would walk between the animals and you would say, if I break the terms of this covenant, may whatever happened to these animals happen to me. And oftentimes it did. That's important. That's important because if you don't know that, 
You'll read right through Genesis chapter 15 and not have any idea what you're reading. For years, for decades, I read that and I didn't, even, I didn't understand what it meant because I didn't know what was happening. I didn't understand the terms of ancient covenant or ancient treaty making. I didn't understand how any of that worked. And when you do and you read that passage, go home and read it, Genesis chapter 15, you're going to find that what happens there is unprecedented in the course of human history. Because as Abram falls into a trance... God appears in the form of what is referred to as a flaming pot. God often appears as fire. You see it with uh, Moses in the burning bush. God appears as a flaming pot. And as Abram is in a trance, that flaming pot passes between the separated animals. That is important. And the reason I spent so much time on it is because what happened on that day is that when a new covenant was made with humanity, God knew that the terms of the covenant would be strict. It was going to take a lot to help a people, collectively and individually, for whom darkness had creeped back into their souls and into their heart, learn what it meant to become a people of God again. God knew that, so there are 613 laws in that covenant that was made. God knew there would be sacrifice required for those who could not live up to the terms of the covenant. So when that happened, to everybody who understood what it meant to make a covenant or a contract in the ancient world, what they saw was that generations ago, it was God who promised to pay the price if the covenant was broken. Not the people. God. Generations later, on an inconsequential night in a very small town under the light of a really bright star. God would come to earth in the form of a small child, ready to put a series of events in motion. There were many things that God did as, as a, when God came in human form. One of them was to give us an example of what it means to be in relationship right relationship with God. Uh, the example that we get through the life of Christ shows us what it means to live life in relationship with God according to the new covenant that Christ was beginning in that moment. The other thing Christ came to do was to pay the price that was necessary to pay for the terms of the breaking of the covenant so that humanity could step out of a covenant designed to help bring us out of darkness and step into a covenant designed to help bring us into wholeness and life. So on the cross... God did exactly what God said that God would do and paid the price so that we wouldn't have to. God pays the price not only for Israel, but God pays the price for you and I. And that's important. That's important because the first thing I think you should remember when you're thinking about what covenant or what uh, resurrection means is that God will do what God has said that God will do. And we know that because God has already done what God said that God would do. God said generations ago that when it's time, God said, I will pay the price. You're not going to be able to pay that price, so I'll pay the price. Everybody who knew what, it, what went into making a covenant in the ancient world didn't read past that, wondering why on earth is there a flaming pot in this part of Genesis? That doesn't make any sense. They knew. They knew that God was saying that God would do what God didn't want you and I to have to do. And God did. God comes back and pays that price so that we don't have to pay it. God will do what God has said that God will do. And we know that because God has done what God has said that God would do. So what has God said that God will do? That's the question you should be asking. 
God has said that the darkness that's creeped its way back into human culture and the lives and hearts of people won't have the final say and won't be allowed to remain. And given the end of the story, in God's great wisdom, we got the rest of the story. Did you ever listen to Paul Harvey? I, I used to do that when I was on my way into uh, work in the mornings when I was in the Army. And I, I'd always be in the car right at the right time to hear the first part of Paul Harvey's story, but I never got to get, I'd listen to my radio in the car, right? So I never got to get back in the car to hear the rest of the story. It was so frustrating. Every day, I'd hear the first part of the broadcast, and then I never got to come back to hear the rest of the story. God, in God's great wisdom, gave us the rest of the story so we wouldn't have to wonder what was yet to come. We wouldn't have to wonder what God was promising. We wouldn't have to wonder if things were ever going to get better. In God's great wisdom, God tells us, particularly through uh, Revelation, but also in places like Mark and some of the other Gospels, that there's going to be a day when things are better. Not only will we not have to say goodbye to the people that we love, not only will death be a thing of the past, war will be a thing of the past, but so many other things that don't need to be the way that they are. There's hope. There's hope that things will get better. There will be no sickness. There will be no pain. There will be no suffering. We won't have to say goodbye to people because no one will die anymore. We won't have to worry about people making fun of other people for things that they cannot control or at their own expense or for their own advancement. We won't have to worry about divisiveness. We won't have to worry about people complaining about not liking another person for another reason. All of those things will be a thing of the past. We can trust and hope that God will do what God has said that God will do because God has done what God has said that God will do. The resurrection means that God will do what God has said that God will do. And because we know what the end of the story is, we can trust with hope that we're being led that direction step by step by step. It also means that you can be healed. Resurrection means that you can be healed. There's a story about Jesus encountering a, a man who's been uh, sitting beside uh, a pool that's in what's called the Sheep Gate of Jerusalem, part of a, a pool that had five pillars around it. A lot of people used to stay there because there was this ancient belief that uh, an angel would come down and stir the waters of the pool, and the first person to get into the pool after the angel had stirred the waters of the pool would be healed. So there's this guy who hasn't been able to walk for 37 years. He's been sitting beside this pool. He can't get into the pool because somebody always makes it into the pool first when the, the waters are stirred. Incidentally, obviously people are getting healed because he stayed there for 37 years trying to be the first one into the water. I have to wonder because the scriptures don't tell us in detail about his entire story, just how long he's been there, what he's dealing with, and that he wants to be healed. But he gets a bad rap. I'll get to that in a second. I just can't help but wonder how many times he tried to crawl. In that 37-year period, how many times did he try to crawl into the pool when he saw the water getting stirred, but somebody else who also wanted to be healed, who could move better than he could move, got to the water first, and he wasn't able to be healed. And he had to sit there and watch year after year, stirring after stirring after stirring. Over time, must have felt like he was sitting in the darkness of this tomb that had been created around him that he couldn't get out of 
because the stone was too heavy to roll away. He had tried. In 37 years, God knew he had tried. That's why God approached him. He had tried over and over unsuccessfully, his hopes rising and then being dashed. And God approaches him. Jesus walks up to him and asks the question. He says, do you want to be healed? The first time I ever read that, I thought, that's a ridiculous question. Of course he wants to be healed. The man doesn't answer it. And Jesus doesn't ask ridiculous questions. The man instead says, I've been trying. I've been trying. Now he gets a bad rap. Through most of Christian history, this guy gets a bad rap because he's treated as if he's somehow lazy. Oh, I want to. I'd love to be healed. I, I, I want to go. I just can't get there. Every time somebody, uh, the, the water gets stirred, somebody gets down there before I do, and nobody will lift me up and take me down and help me to get in the water. I've heard sermons preached about how he shouldn't have been relying on other people. He was just being lazy. Obviously, he didn't want to be healed. That's why Christ asked him, let me offer you another version of that story. Christ comes to him and says, hey, do you want to be healed? Because Christ knows that he can't do it himself. Christ knows that the stone is too big to be rolled away by that man. That man is not strong enough to heal himself. And so Christ says, you want to be healed. I'm here now. I have come to you, Christ says, because I know what your circumstances is. God knows everything about all people for all time, all at once. He knows that the guy is there. He, he knew about every instance in which the guy was trying to get into the pool, couldn't get there, wanted, probably begged and pleaded people to carry him down into the pool, but nobody would do it. And then eventually, I bet he gave up. Do you want to be healed? I've been trying. What does the man say? I need help. I can't do this. I can't get healed myself. I need help. Christ's next remark is, then be healed. Get up, take your mat, and go walk. He doesn't chastise him. He doesn't say, well, why didn't you try harder to get to the pool? Why have you been sitting here for 37 years? Clearly somebody's taking care of you because you're still alive. Why haven't you found somebody? He doesn't say any of that. He says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Why? Because Christ knows that sometimes there are stones that are too heavy for you and I to roll away in front of the tombs that have been created around us. Christ knows that sometimes those tombs are created by a series of circumstances that we didn't have any control over, and other times we participated in creating our own tombs. Here's the thing. No matter how it's created, Sometimes the stone is too heavy for us to roll away by ourselves. You can be healed. The resurrection means that you can be healed. Christ is going to do what only Christ can do and roll away the stone that is too heavy for you to roll away by yourself. If you are laboring under the illusion that you can heal yourself, take heart. You're probably, in that sense, sitting there in the midst of the darkness of that tomb, no telling how many times, whatever it is that has caused that tomb to be created around you, no, no telling how many times you've been trying to get the stone out of the way, but you can't move it because it's too big for you to move. God has to do that. Sometimes that happens in a variety of ways. Sometimes it happens because God connects you with the people who can help you to heal. 
Very often, when God does what we can't do, then we pick up our mat and walk from the tomb we've been in into the light. That's what he tells this guy to do. I'll do what you can't do, but you pick up your mat, you take it, and you go walk into life and happiness and wholeness and freedom. You know what he doesn't do? Once Jesus has rolled this guy's stone away, the man doesn't continue to sit there in a tomb that he could walk right out of. You can be healed. We can also change. The last thing I would ask you to remember about the resurrection is that it means that we can change. Have you heard me say recently that none of this is necessary? Because it isn't. Over time, darkness creeps back into the human heart. Darkness has crept back into human culture. Christ has conquered sin and death so we could step out of one covenant and into a new covenant, the next covenant, the one in which we have an opportunity to get to know God for ourselves. We don't have to go through a prophet. We don't have to go through a priest to get to know God. We can know God for ourselves. That's one of the the parts of the new covenant that makes it so incredible and also different from the old covenant. We can change. None of this is necessary. The division that we experience in our own culture, the political and philosophical and social divides, the way that we treat people that we disagree with to their face, through a screen, or behind their back, none of it is necessary. Let me tell you a story about what that looked like in the ancient world. Because my guess is that every single one of us, to be fair, every single one of us has both experienced something like what I just mentioned and we have also contributed to it. They bring this woman who's caught in adultery to Christ. Has it occurred to you? I'm ashamed to admit that I was way too old before it finally occurred to, occurred to me pretty recently. Has it occurred to you? If I said to you, not everything you think is right. Most of us would say, oh, I, I know that. I know that I'm not right about everything. But then, if we're honest with ourselves and other people, typically we go and act like we are. Has it occurred to you that not everything you believe is right, holy, healthy, and good? That in order for God to help you and I grow spiritually, grow into spiritual maturity and embrace life, happiness, wholeness, and health that God very much wants for those of us who are stepping into the ethic of the kingdom and out of the wounded and broken ethic of a broken world, that in order to take those steps, that involves changing some things that we thought we were right about. Sometimes God's interpretation of the very laws that have defined and formed our faith is very different from ours. And they brought her to Jesus. They were doing that in large part because they wanted to test him. They were upset about the things that Jesus was teaching. Hadn't yet recognized that Jesus was God. So here's what they do. They bring this woman who's caught in adultery to Jesus and say, according to the law of Moses, I I can't, I wonder what Jesus was thinking when they said that. He had to be thinking something like, according to the law given to Moses, 
Jesus had to be thinking, I'm the one who gave the law to Moses. I, Jesus, Jesus is God. The law wasn't Moses' law. It was the law that God gave to Moses. And what did they do in order to try to test and trick Jesus? They brought that argument to the one who gave the law. But no matter. They said, according to the law given to us by Moses, this woman is supposed to be stoned. What would you have us do? Hoping to trap him, right? Jesus gets down, starts writing on the ground. The scriptures do not tell us what Jesus wrote about. But he gets down, he starts writing on the ground. The woman is right there. Everybody's around. They're all holding stones, right? Can you imagine what it must be like to die by stoning? There can't be a lot worse than that. Maybe a crucifixion. Scriptures don't tell us what he was writing. He gets down and he's writing on the ground. And then he gets up and he looks at him and he says, all right, how about we do this? I'm paraphrasing. How about we do this? How about whichever of you, you, uh, your translation will say it in one of these couple of ways. How about whichever of you hasn't sinned, or whichever of you is without sin, you start throwing the stones first. And then he bends down again and starts writing on the ground again. You'll find the story in John. Now the scriptures say that they drop their stones, turn around and leave. Listen to this. The eldest of them going first. There's two kinds of people in the world. There's a kind of person who says, because I went through this, you should have to go through this. And there's another kind of person who says, I went through this so that you don't have to go through this. Why did the eldest people leave first? As I've thought about, because the scriptures don't tell us why, just that it happened. As I've thought about that and prayed about that over the years, I can't help but wonder if those people who had the most experience there, they're the oldest, they've lived the most life. When Jesus said, those of you who are without sin or who haven't sinned, you cast the first stone, there had to be a moment where each of them thought back on their life because by the time you've lived to the age of the elders in that story, you've experienced time and time and time again when darkness crept into your own heart in a way that you wish it never would have. You've experienced time and time and time again when you realized that you were trapped inside of a dark tomb with a stone in front of it that you were too weak to roll away by yourself. One of them, or maybe all of them, had to have looked at her differently in that moment. And instead of seeing someone whom they could punish, they saw someone who was sitting there alone in a tomb that looked very much like the one they had been in themselves. We can change. They all walk away, the elders first, and then Jesus looks up and says, is there nobody here left to condemn you? Condemn. Listen to that. This is God talking to her. Is there nobody here to condemn you? She says, no one, Lord. Then God says, then neither do I condemn you. There's two interpretations of what comes next. The way you interpret it will say more about you and where you are in your spiritual growth process than it does about that woman. Neither do I condemn you. Go now. And don't sin anymore. Sin, by definition, is anything that separates you from God. It's God. God looks at her and says, I don't condemn you. Jesus, who is the part of the Godhead given authority to judge, the only being in all of creation given the authority to judge, looks at her and says, I do not condemn you. God says, I do not condemn you. Sin 
defined as anything that separates you from God. So you can look at it one of two ways. Jesus either said, I don't condemn you, go and stop doing bad things. Which is maybe what he said. Or, Jesus said, I don't condemn you. You don't need to live separated from me anymore. We can change. The resurrection means that we can change. And those changes begin when you and I choose to drop the stones that we're holding. Because in whatever circumstance we're in, whether it's a group situation or a one-on-one interaction, whatever the topic of discussion is, whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, we begin to look at the other person. You know when you're holding a stone, metaphorically speaking, because praise God we don't do that today, at least not here. When you're holding a stone like that, it's because you feel like you have a right to judge. You feel like you have a right to hold accountable. You feel like you have a right to hold someone to task or to punish them for whatever it is they've done wrong and been caught in doing wrong in. And yet Jesus says, actually the opposite is true. Actually, Jesus says, you don't have any right to judge. Judge not lest you be judged because the measure you use is the measure that will be used against you. Jesus says, actually, you don't have any right to do that. What you do have a right to do is release them from the tomb that they're in. Jesus also says that the followers of Christ, those those people whom you might call uh, the redeemed, the people who have chosen to follow Christ, to accept the love of Christ, to want to be in relationship with Christ, there's so many ways you can say that. Jesus says that every single one of us has the authority to proclaim the forgiveness of Christ. We don't have the authority to judge, we have the authority to set free, and we flip them around all the time. We can change. We'll start changing when we start seeing the other person as trapped in the very same kind of tomb that we've spent way too much time in ourselves. Maybe it was a different reason. Maybe it was created differently, but dark tombs seem to look the same no matter what they did. He had to sit there and wonder. There had to have been a moment when he was remembering all of the times that he had breathed life, that the breath of life had carried the light of life into the dark places of the world, and it was about to happen again. God will do what God has said that God will do. There's hope in that, and we know it because God has done. That's what we celebrate today. It's why we keep telling this story for 2,000 years so that we can be reminded that God has done what God has said that God would do. And that means that God will do what God has said that God will do. It will get better. Darkness will not be allowed to reign. God's final intent is the same as God's original intent, that you and I would live in the presence of God as the people of God, together in the place of God. Happy, healthy, whole, eternally. God will do what God has said that God will do. We know the end of the story. In the meantime, you can be healed. You can be healed. God is there ready and willing in whatever way is necessary because that's where the metaphor changes for each and every person. 
Your tomb is different than the tomb of anybody next to you, and chances are you've been in a few of them over the course of your life, but I would venture a guess that there is something right now that you're being called to step out of, something that you feel is too big for you to be able to do on your own. God is there, ready to do what you cannot do so that you can do what you can do. Because until that happens, your efforts are always futile. You can be healed. And we can change. We will change as we're healed. Because as we're healed, we'll begin to see other people the way God does. So begin. There's an old proverb that says, if you don't know where to start, start from wherever you are. Pastor, I'm in a tomb right now and I don't know what to do. There is help. For whatever it is you're trying to get out of, there's help. For whatever it is you're trying to heal from, there is help. You won't heal on your own by yourself. There is help. For whatever it is you're trying to heal from, step out of and into new life, there is help for that. Accept the help. That's what Jesus is asking. Do you want it? Yeah, I do. Then accept it. And God says, I will do what you cannot do for yourself so that you can do what you can do for yourself. And when the tomb is opened, you'll pick up your mat and you'll walk into the light. And we can change. As we heal, we will change and the world around us will change because what you're experiencing about the world right now that is frustrating and divisive and hurtful is not necessary. From time to time, take a look at your own hand just if for no other reason than to check and see whether or not you're holding a stone. If you are, drop it. Turn around, walk away. And ask God to help you to see the one that you would have thrown that stone at. As one who's also really trying desperately to get into that pool. And just needs some help to get there. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we're grateful for the ways in which you call us to life and to love and to wholeness. Pray that your Holy Spirit, wherever and whenever we are, would fill us and shower your grace and mercy down upon us, God, in a way that helps us to know that we are loved, that we are of value, and that your work has redeemed us so that we can step out of the chains that would have bound us and into the life that you're calling us to live. And help us, God, to be a part of what you're doing to, to live out that healing in such a way that because of your love working through us, others are freed from their chains as well. Because there is no reason for chains. There is no reason for tombs. You've overcome separation and sin and death. There's no reason for many of the things that are plaguing us the way that they're plaguing us. We're not yet what we will be, God, but help us as we seek to become what you're calling us to. God, we give you thanks for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. who was crucified on the cross, conquered sin and death, and was raised again for our sake. 
The very same Jesus who said there will be a new covenant. And every time you do this, every time you participate in the ratification ceremony yourself by eating of my flesh and drinking of my blood, remember that there is a new covenant and that in that new covenant there is hope. And there is hope because relationship is possible in a way that it wasn't before. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would make these gifts of bread and wine into your body and your blood. That as we partake of them together, we might not only be nourished, but know that we're redeemed. In your holy name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. As always, subscribe to our podcast, and we hope to see you again next week.